What is up, Hockey IQ listeners? I'm here to chat about our newest sponsor, Sensorina. Your brain is one of the most important parts of your body. Why not invest in a tool that allows you to train it? With Sensorina, athletes can gain a competitive edge using VR training. Players are able to go through a scenario thousands of times without having to step foot on the ice. No more waiting around for puck touches or perfect scenarios. Sensorina can enhance reaction time, decision-making, and multitasking abilities, making you the next MVP. I mean, if the LA Kings are using it, it's got to be good. With our promo code HockeyIQ, you receive $50 off an annual plan purchase. Head on over to Sensorina.com to check it all out. On the Hockey IQ podcast today, we bring on Kenny McCudden, uh, development coach currently with the Blue Jackets, but all around excellent guy who's looking out for kids everywhere. So, uh, Ken, excited to have you on. Uh, appreciate being on, Craig. Very, very much. Thank you. So let's get into this. You've you've been a development and skills coach for a really long time. So uh, instead of me butchering your, your past, I'll let you uh, give us a 30 second rundown of that. Well, I'm going into my eighth year with, uh, let's go from the present to the, a little bit to the past, uh, uh, going into my eighth year with the Blue Jackets uh, under Brad Larson. And uh, we got an outstanding coaching staff right now uh, uh, with Steve McCarthy, Pascal Vincent, uh, Jared Bull, uh, a great, great uh, staff. So, um, yeah, then going into my minor league career as a coach, uh, 18 years with the Chicago Wolves in the American Hockey League. Uh, three and a half years with the women's development program, going to Sochi with the Olympics. And then, uh, you know, my gosh, uh, 32 years of 125,000 kids later uh, throughout the world, uh, you know, from, from Europe to Chicago, so to downtown Chicago. But uh, literally, uh, I'm probably off maybe two or 3,000 one way or the other, but 125,000 kids. So uh, I've been at it for a long time. Few people may know you, I guess, at that point, 125. Well, here here in Illinois, uh, for sure. Um, yeah, I mean, uh, obviously, when you don't dabble in any kind of work, uh, you know, like I have not been in the last seven years in Illinois, that, there was a big core of kids that wouldn't know you, obviously. But, uh, yeah, I, uh, you know, when you look at uh, the amount of players that are in the National Hockey League from, from Illinois, Christian Fisher, Ryan Dezingle, Ryan Hartman, Vinny Henestroza. I mean, you could just go on and on and on, but these are all kids that I remember. I mean, this is how long I've been at it, Greg, where those kids were six and seven years old when I was working with them. So uh, no different than when you're working with kids with Col- in Columbus, working with mites, uh, you never know what you're going to get there. Uh, um, I look at uh, the past uh, working with Jared Bull. Jared Bull and I are from the same community here uh, in, in Illinois. And, uh, you know, I used to look at him as a kid and you, you don't look at a little kid like that, whether he's 10 or 12 and say, Oh, he's going to be a national hockey league, heavyweight fighter. Um, uh, you just don't see that. You only see the kid, but, uh, uh, the success stories of, um, so many coaches doing a great job, uh, throughout North America, getting these kids along and, uh, <clears throat> everybody takes a part in it. Um, whether you're, you're coaching the kid, uh, uh, seven or eight months out of the year as far as on their team uh, or when you have uh, private coaches doing private work or skills coaches, whatever, everybody's chips in and uh, um, parents are 
really, really looking, you know, for results today. Uh, I saw that about 20 years ago, and I'm, I'm sure it's more demanding today. Well, it's got to be cool that you've uh, come full circle with Jared Bowl. See him as a kid, uh, then as a young man, and now as a fellow peer with the Jackets. Yeah, and, uh, you know, th- that's one thing I can never forget how we've gone full circle is Jared used to have a, during my years with the Wolves, Jared used to bring me out uh, to Columbus. And uh, I was probably in my fifth or sixth year working in the summer programs with Jared Bull and a group of others uh, from, from the Blue Jackets. And uh, finally, I got seen. I think a lot of people thought I was very uh, complacent being with the Chicago Wolves, which uh, is a tremendous organization. They're having a good year this year and possibly a Calder Cup uh, finalist or winner this year. But uh, um, no, I obviously wanted to move on, but I, I got seen by uh, Billy Zito, Yarmulkekalein, and John Davidson, <clears throat> Todd Richards, and um, they ended up going through the building one day when I was working with the guys in August, preparing them for, for camp. And uh, the next thing I know, uh, they spoke to me, and then they were going to bring me in as a private contractor um, for that year, and it didn't work out for, for a couple different reasons, scheduling, and the, most importantly, and uh, then the following year I got hired, but, uh, yeah, I love Columbus, but Jared Bull was the, I credit Jared Bull, uh, an awful lot for, uh, opening up the door for me. At least I got seen, but at the same point, Greg, I turned down, uh, probably three or four NHL jobs in the past. Uh, I did have a good thing here in Chicago. I didn't want to leave. I had my schools. I had all my privates. I had so much work. Um, that I was not enamored just with any kind of NHL job. It had to be the perfect fit. And Columbus ended up being perf- the perfect fit uh, uh, due to Jared Bowl. That's awesome to hear. And uh, at what point did you know that Jared Bowl was going to be an NHLer? Well, you don't. Uh, it's a good question. You, you just don't. Uh, I want to say he left the program that I was working with at the age of 14 or 15. And then he disappears. He's off to play AAA hockey. And I wasn't with that AAA organization. I think he was with Team Illinois at that time. And I was 12 to 14 years with uh, the mission. So uh, I didn't do any TTI work. So then he goes away and plays junior. And next thing you know, he's turned pro, uh, I think, a year or so in the American League and uh, straight to the NHL. But um, no, you don't think. Um, The one thing I do see, though, is – if I'm with a, a player in the past, you know, Mike through Bantam, <clears throat> you see them really turning the corner at the Bantam level. And then you get to see them playing for the mission, playing AAA le- at the AAA level. Um, you can actually see the athleticism in those players uh, with their skating game, their vision, their puck handling, uh, how they pass, how they shoot. Um and obviously they're on the map for colleges. So they're on the map today at 13 and 14 years old. Uh, colleges are obviously looking at these players. And uh, uh, in this state, uh, which is a very, very competitive state, the state of Illinois, um, there's so many kids coming out of the programs here. And, and you and I have discussed this in the past on the telephone before, but uh, so many organizations, so many great tier two organizations Tier two, that would be a lot of AAA in a lot of other states. But uh, so many kids are coming out of the programs because uh, when you look at the grassroots programs and the amount of buildings and uh, and slabs of ice uh, here in Illinois, obviously, the more numbers you have, you're going to produce some hockey players, whether it's, uh, 
young girls uh, getting to the college level or uh, the Olympic level, like the Kendall Coins of the world or the Jared Bowles of the world. I feel like hockey has grown immensely in the depth of talent and how a lot more players are being developed. So even if you feel like you're the best player in one city, you go one city over and it's unbelievable the talent that's there as well. It's not like you can go from one small pond into a big pond and dominate immediately. Um, but that's, I think that's a key thing that's happened in, in the United States. I'm curious seeing the evolution of what we've been able to produce as a country and as a world, uh, what's it like from 30 years ago to where it is today? Well, the evolution, I, w- I actually saw, I was part of it. I mean, meaning like uh, being able to see firsthand, I think why as a nation, speaking for the U.S., um, across the board, whether you were in California all the way to New York City, um, again, so many programs, but I really believe the emphasis was on skating. Uh, as a nation, um, there was power skating. The word power skating came along basically in the mid eighties with Laura Stam and the New York Islanders, maybe even in the early eighties, but it really didn't really come forward throughout the U S until maybe the late eighties, but uh, and then pounded heavily in the early nineties. But I'd have to say as a nation, the focus was on skating because it created so many jobs for so many coaches to be able to teach power skating. Well, when you're teaching power skating, you're teaching kids how to skate at the, you know, at the, to be at the right level, um, with their, with their form, with the way they skate, uh, good knee bend, uh, good extended stride, good arm swing, whatever it might be, but that's happening at the learn to skate levels. So it's not just happening at the pre-hockey levels, it's happening at the learn to skate level. So in the late eighties, that started really, really, uh, uh, happening in a huge way, especially in the States that, uh, produce an awful lot of good hockey players between Minnesota, Michigan, Massachusetts, Illinois, uh, and when you start, uh, you know, creating that kind of environment, the demands come higher from parents because they, they, they see what's happening with this organization. And if it's not happening with theirs, they're going to go down the street. And, uh, that's what's ha- That's what happened back in the day. So it became very, very competitive who was teaching, um, the best art of skating, uh, to be, to be honest with you. And, uh, uh, I think that's, uh, where the United States did such a great job. It was just focusing on skating. Excellent. And then with this added depth that seems to be added since we get such great skaters, what do you feel like that's done? Because we obviously haven't added as many teams, uh, many levels um, as players have come up. So I, like, for example, uh, a program you work with UNLV, you know, even the club level is unbelievable hockey. Uh, compared to what it was even 10, 20 years ago. And those teams arguably could have been NCAA level uh, in years prior. Great league, solid hockey, solid players. Yeah, it's one of my uh, pet peeves is when I talk about how good club hockey is and parents look at me sideways like, what are you talking about? My kid's going Division One, And I'm over here looking like, uh, yeah, I don't think you understand, one, how hard Division One is, and number two, how good the ACHA is. Like, it's unbelievable hockey. And just like if people saw more of that, which they obviously, you know, you see a lot of the NHL and that's what everyone aspires to or NCAA, because, you know, it's on TV and everyone aspires to that, but there are other levels of play that are good quality and a lot of fun to have. Oh yeah. And, and I've been able to see some of their games and I've watched some of their games on tape. I've seen some of them live. 
they have a wonderful environment where they play out of. They play out of the practice facility where uh, the Golden Knights play out of. And uh, I want to say the building holds like 3,000, but they're sold out every single game. UNLV is literally sold out. and uh, But now rinks are going up there. Um, you know, uh, the, their, the American Hockey League team to the Golden Knights is just down the street, uh, basically. And uh, there's people investing in building slabs out in Vegas because now it's a big thing. Obviously, they got an NHL team. But what promotes hockey there, too, is programs like UNLV. People that don't get a chance to see uh, the Vegas Knights play will go and play or go and watch UNLV play. So uh, because they're in the same practice facility. So it's a, a great setup that they have. They couldn't have fallen into a better setup. Um, and uh, yeah, I, I, I see that uh, when you're looking at a 3000 seat building like that, I think that's a great, great setup uh, to start, uh, go, to go from a club team uh, to even a division one team to play out of there. Um, that'd be a great place. I mean, uh, look at OSU, what they were playing out of just years ago. Uh, think about in that. Think about where they are today, as far as from from the, uh, a small little rink to a twenty thousand seat arena. So um, UNLV, uh, whether they if they did become Division One and it did stay in that building, it would still be a great great setup. But who knows? Maybe they'll get a setup eventually, like uh, uh, ASU does uh, with a six thousand seat arena. Yeah, and it's amazing because you've got a club team like that, and it could be cheaper than playing Division Three, where you're paying for school at private college. And uh, I can't say enough good things about the, the that level of play. Great hockey. It's great hockey. Absolutely great hockey. Um, so you're working with them, and you're working with CBJ, and you're working with the youth. You know, how do you approach your job and what are you teaching? Because obviously you can't just come in and teach the breakout. That would, that would make no sense uh, since you're not, you know, driving the team systems. Well, I mean, you just uh, encompass the whole range of levels there. <clears throat> Every level is different. Like, for instance, I take a couple of weeks off here in the summer, but um, I've already got uh, pro players call me, American Hockey League players, NHL players that want to get on the ice by June the 1st here in Illinois. So, uh, uh, but my summer is that exactly that AHL and NHL, uh, combination skates, uh, low numbers. I have USHL skates. Uh, and then I travel with the exact same thing. Um, but, uh, yes. And then I'm still dabbling in, uh, youth level programs and uh, high school programs. So, uh, I do a high, I do, uh, a high school clinic for a Catholic hockey league team, uh, here in July. But I also work with uh, a group of high schoolers that, uh, are able to get me twice a week for June, July, and a little bit of August. And, uh, I enjoy that, but getting on the, I don't, I don't get on the ice with, uh, organizations as far as being able to see their mites through their bantams. I don't have the time for that because I do have travel and that, that type of thing, but, uh, I am on the ice with all sorts of levels, but, my drive is, depending on the program that, that you're working with, is uh, uh, what, what, what do these levels need? That's my, that's my biggest focus. If it's at the highest level, my focus is getting uh, their hands and their feet and their pace going. Uh, if it's at the high school level, I'm teaching fundamentals still. Uh, big time fundamentals and breaking bad habits. Uh, if it's at the youth level, which I travel for as far as uh, to friends programs that are directors of hockey and I'll go out and make a little vacation out of it. 
like I'll be in Coeur d'Alene, Idaho, uh, might be going to Colorado uh, to Boulder for that. But uh, to work with younger players and work with a youth level organization um, for these friends of mine, uh, my focus is to uh, uh, obviously support directors that have the same philosophy as myself. And that philosophy is uh, fundamentals first. And then you can start teaching what you were talking about, the breakouts and this and that when it comes to like squirts and peewees and that type of thing. But uh, the fundamentals uh, all the way through from young age, all the way to the NHL still have to be worked on. I mean, uh, why, why does a player stay after practice and shoot 50 pucks at the NHL level? Because they want that repetition and it's, it's going to be fundamentally sound. Uh, they're going to be able to transfer that and take that from the practice that they just had or post-practice and be able to uh, implement that into a game situation because they shot pucks. And I'm using that as the very, very simplest little thing, but shooting pucks is a fundamental. Uh, I, I do it on my property here throughout the summer. I still shoot pucks because I want to be able to pass and shoot when I get on the ice uh, with every level in the summer. So the big thing for me, Greg, in the summertime is, why I'm so active, uh, it keeps my, keeps my mind right. Because as a coach, if you are uh, not getting on the ice, I, I'll speak for myself. If you're not getting on the ice, uh, I just feel like if, if I had to take two, two months off or two and a half months off and then try to get back on the ice, uh, my timing wouldn't be there. My mind, um, the way I lay out a practice, um, how everything flows in, to it wouldn't be a clean practice is what I'm saying. Um, so even when I get back uh, in June here, it'll take me at least two practices at the NHL and American Hockey League level. Get my timing. Guys won't recognize it. The players won't recognize it, but I do. And uh, it'll take at least two times uh, and, and to get my feet underneath me. So uh, I just don't know how coaches uh, can take off uh, four months and then get back on the ice at training camp. That's, that's tough because mentally – um, you're, you, it, it takes you a while to get, get, get right back into it. Uh, and I, I, I wouldn't, I couldn't be prepared that way. There's no way. So youth, you're doing fundamentals, high school, you're breaking bad habits and fundamentals. What does that look like at the pro level and junior level? Well, junior level, uh, USHL level, major junior A level, college level and pro level. Again, my focus is pace, but my practices are all designed on small areas, uh, how to be able to use small areas. Like, for instance, if I start a practice and I have only seven players, I don't need to use the full ice, but I will use the red line in to, to warm them up, uh, then take it from the blue line in, take it from the tops of the circles in, and then maybe ending with everything off the half walls, the corners, the back wall. But everything is a, uh, a game situation. And uh, – Heavy duty reps, heavy duty pace, even in the summer, because you can't just build your pace. Um, it, it, that's just not going to come. You, you've got to go. You've got to go at it at, at a good, good speed, not a practice speed. So the, the my big, my area uh, of if uh, expertise, if you want to say, if that's what it is, bringing it to that those levels that I'm talking about is to have those players recognize that they have a coach driving them to the highest level uh, to prepare them for the, their highest level that they're playing at, at the moment. But 
to do to to run a practice and have players out there going sixty percent, it wouldn't it, it can't happen. Um, when I start in June, it's going to probably in the opening skates, it'll probably be seventy five percent. By the end of the week, I expected to be eighty percent. At the following week after that, I expected to be game like, and um, because that's what the players want, and ramping it up. Uh, you know. The, there's players who talk about ramping up their ice time in late July and August to prepare them for whatever camp they may be going to. Uh, it's a great, great workout. And um, it's amazing what players are putting into not only their off ice, but they're on ice so early in the month of June now, because uh, it's basically when we're talking about those levels, Greg, I feel that it's really become past a 10 and a half month job in a lot of ways uh, between their training off the ice and on the ice. Uh, it, it's almost getting closer to 11 months. Um, where I don't believe in 11 months is at the youth level. Um, but when we're talking junior, when we're talking college, when we're talking pro, uh, it's, it's 11 months because uh, they can't afford to take any more time off. But uh, youth level, I mean, you and I can go on to an, another podcast session and talk about, you know, uh, how much youth level players should be playing, what uh, should they be multi-sport athletes, that type of thing. Uh, but yeah, at, at the youth level, uh, from Bannerman all the way down, I believe multi-sport athletes are terrific, and I believe they should not be playing hockey for 10 and a half months. Uh, they should be dabbling in other uh, sports or time off, uh, enjoying life as a kid. Um, and, uh, you know, eventually getting back at it, but I think there's too much pressure on kids. Uh, when you're looking at kids, uh, in any sport at 10 or 12 years old and, and they're solely focusing on their sport at that age. Um, we wonder why we have injuries, uh, in their late teens. Why do they have bad hips? Why do they have a bad pitching arm? Why do they have a Tommy John elbow from pitching, uh, why do they have pull grinds all the time? That type of thing. So um, it's because I think the focus the last 25 years has uh, solely been focusing on one sport instead of allowing them to be a athlete. And uh, because one, one sport, Greg, and you, you'll probably agree with me here is, uh, and I don't think I'll get any argument out of anybody with this is one sport benefits the next. If you're playing baseball and you're a hockey player, iron hand coordination, getting a fastball, a curveball, a knuckleball thrown at you and trying to hit it with a round bat is only going to help you for tipping in pucks. Um, with, with a shot coming at you at 105 miles an hour, whereas a baseball might be thrown at you 80 miles an hour, 70 miles an hour when it comes to youth level. Um, so one sport benefits the, the next. Um, so, uh, and I think one of the greatest sports for, for kids to learn, uh, would be tennis and golf, uh, because it, it teaches you about, uh, sportsmanship. You find out about who you are as far as if you can dig it out of the dirt, if, uh, you can push yourself without a team environment being around you, uh, what can you do for you? And then the honesty factor that comes out of a game like golf, uh, <laughs> do you play it out of the woods or do you kick your ball? Uh, you know, so uh, uh, I, I played golf and I competed in golf my whole entire life. And it was probably one of the greatest teaching tools about teaching you who you are. 
and who you should be as a person. But uh, And then the team environment, playing Little League and playing in the gym with basketball and playing on a football team, whatever, soccer, um, I think they all benefit and blend into one to make you a better athlete. Love that. I, I know Johnny Goudreau was a, he played soccer in the summers as part of his training for many, many years until he went off to juniors. Uh, I don't know if he still plays, but uh, Pavalski, everyone talks about what a great athlete he was first. So lots and lots of stories. Uh, I want to come back to your philosophy a little bit. He talked about playing with pace, but also playing in small areas. And to some people that may be counter to each other, because, you know, if you're in a small area, it's really hard to get up to full stride. I'm curious for you, what does playing with pace mean? Well, pace, pace, you're actually going to see in longer areas of the ice, obviously uh, uh, a breakout or a quick up or neutral zone skating. You're going to see pace a whole lot stronger, but if you, if you bring, things from the top of the circle down pace can be how a player gets out of the blocks, uh, a crossover start, um, acceleration being leaned on or being contained, uh, with a one-on-one that's the pace I'm talking about, uh, in the small areas, but, uh, um, pace can also be Greg where, uh, I learned this from Chris Drury. Chris Drury is the general manager of the New York Rangers. I've worked with Chris for years. So he'd fly me around the country. But to watch Chris Drury go through six reps, for instance, and this is something a lot of national hockey leaguers and American hockey leaguers can learn from this in college and obviously uh, junior, but his sixth rep was his strongest rep. So each rep got stronger. But those reps might have been happening within 45 seconds or 30 seconds, like a shift. To have that go stronger, that was building up to game-like. There's too many players that their reps get a little bit slower. Uh, They don't have that pace. Um, They lose their technique. They lose their form. John Tortorella had a great line. You're not tired. And that's when players were tired. You're not tired. And all he would say that for was mentally to hear that, then in practice, you could fight through that, whether it's training camp or whether it's December in practice. You're not tired because he wanted them to get through that being tired because it's going to happen in a game situation. So going back to Chris Drury, yes, he was tired on his fourth rep, fifth rep, sixth rep, but everyone got stronger. And uh, I've taken that. I used to see that and see how great that was. I've taken that and I've tried to teach that to those higher level players, especially if I see their level dipping, going down uh, on each rep. But the pace and short distances can be start, acceleration, um, rolling up, for instance, coming out of the corner and climbing and rolling up and getting to the inside. Uh, take a guy like Austin Matthews to be able to see him or Patrick Kane on the opposite side, to be able to see them leave the corners, curl up, and then gain the inside of the dots and drive. That's all pace. That's all pace in a small area. Um, Pace in a small area would be Artemi Panarin getting over the blue line and still carrying that puck at full speed, stopping on the hash marks because because everybody thinks he's contained. He's on a one-on-three, but he's looking for that next flow of players. 
and, and wave of players coming in, but it might be the second wave that he's looking for. So that one on three looked like a play that was dead in the water, but he had pace to be able to drive north. Then he goes south again, doesn't see a second wave, but sees the third wave. And uh, uh, that to me, uh, that's playing with pace in small areas. Pace also is coming off the half wall, noticing that you have a little bit of room, good solid start, good four or five hard strides, throw the puck on net with a bad angle shot and everybody converge into the net. That could be pace too. So pace can be described in small areas too, especially getting out of the blocks. Excellent. So let's say um, we're working with a player named Latrick uh, Pine and you're looking to help him with pace and down low play. Uh, how would you go about that session? And who's the player? Uh, Latrick Pine. How old is he? Uh, give me a half second. I'll, I'll confirm that with you real quick. He's about six foot four from Finland. Currently six foot five, about two fifty. And what uh, position? Age twenty four. Uh, plays winger, number twenty nine. Okay. And your look. And your question is, Greg, what would I do with him as far as that size when it comes to pace? Yeah, yeah. I mean, he's a shooter. Uh, you know, he's drafted in the say the first round yeah. by yeah. someone in Winnipeg. You know, things like that. Well, looking at a player like that, obviously he can skate. At six foot four. A uh, big, tall, lanky player like that. He can skate. Um, you, you continue to work on a stride. Maybe there's, I don't know, maybe there's a deficiency in uh, his starts. There could be a deficiency in uh, uh, his cutbacks. I don't know. I haven't, I haven't watched him. But, you know, taking any player at that size, it's incredible when you're looking at big players today, the kind of speed that they have. Look at a guy like Patrick Liney the speed that he has. He doesn't look like he's moving, but he is moving. And once he gets that puck through the neutral zone, he's actually flying. Um, and, and he'll actually be, you know, almost like Kuznetsov where he'll see cut still with speed. It looks like his legs are not driving, but they're still see cutting. But going back to the, the young man that you're talking about, uh, uh, no, you, you'd have to obviously look in different areas in a 200 by 85 foot game uh, on the defensive side and the offensive side, what are they lacking? What are they good at? Uh, continue to work on the things that they're good at. Um, that's one of the biggest things. I think that uh, where I've got a relationship with players all my years for 35 years is I work on the things that players are very, what, what has made that player so good? Well, let's continue to work on the positives. So, if that player can skate like the wind through the neutral zone and he can drive deep and then get to the net, I would work on those types of things. Got it. All right. Well, now that we've, we're done talking about Patrick Line, we can move on to maybe a smaller player. Bjorkstrand. Let's go with Bjorkstrand. I now, the like first, that. The, the first player that you mentioned, who, where is he playing? Columbus. You didn't say Patrick Line. Yeah, I was just uh, theoretically saying, you know, Latrick Pine. That, that yeah, that name I didn't get. So I yeah, I'm just flipping the uh, the first initials of each oh, one. I had, no, I had no idea who you were talking about. Um, but now I moved on to a Patrick Liney just to show you. But I had no idea. I thought you were just talking about some player 
at six foot four, and I, I had no idea who you were talking about. Um, I didn't I didn't recognize the name, so uh, I want to make that very very clear. But uh, it's funny that I brought yeah, pol- up- apologies there. Yeah, I was uh, yeah. just flopping those theoretically. No, I, I'm not quick enough for that. It's eight o'clock in the morning here in Chicago. But uh, no, with Patrick Liney, I want to go back to that now. Uh, I brought him up with that size and, and that speed. Patrick, Patrick Liney, what we will continue as an organization to do with Patrick Liney is work on that pace through the neutral zone because he has speed. So I want to answer this the right way with, with a player that uh, is an elite player. But uh, Patrick's so good at also seeing the second and third wave coming in and pulling up and that type of thing. Um, but he's great at getting shots through when it comes through stepping out, uh, seeing a shooting lane, getting it, uh, past a stick through a set of legs. And then we all know what he can do in his office. Uh, the Patrick Liney office on the off wing, the Alex Ovechkin office, the Stamco's office, whatever you want to call it. Um, that shot is elite. There's not many that can shoot the puck from there, uh, the way they do. And, uh, uh, and continue to shoot pucks like that uh, in, in, in his favorite area, but also sliding, gaining the dot inside the dot, not too much outside the dot, but sliding, sliding to the top of the circle, sliding down to the bottom of the circle. But your greatest shooters on that side, Greg, are gaining the dot. Not, not too many guys are scoring from the wall. Uh, with a pass because that angle gets closed up. If a player scores outside a scoring chance area, outside that dot, it's usually a goaltender. The goalie wants it back is what I'm saying. Um, But if it's around the dot area, that dot lane that goes from the goal line through the dot, through the top of the circle, that dot lane, uh, but usually from the dot up to the top of the circle, that's an area or the inside, obviously. That net just keeps on opening, opening, opening for uh, those elite shooters. But I think the further they, they push themselves back on the half wall or they get deep, deep, there's not much there. Um, it's got to be a crisp, hard seam pass and the connection. If you're going to be out of position, more or less, or out of the scoring zone, area, uh, scoring chance area, it's got to be not only a hard pass, but the puck's got to have eyes. Um, we've seen Patrick Kane score on the opposite side from the goal line. Just have too often, especially against elite goalies. Yeah, and uh, actually, Columbus has a player that I'm, I'm higher on than most, uh, Eric Robinson, who's kind yeah. of good at this. What you talk about sliding, where he doesn't really take a full stride. He's just like slowly trying to find the right passing lane. Um, there's a great goal he scored against uh, Vancouver. I want to say two years ago now. Or that's all he was doing. He was shuffling one way, shuffling the other way. It never actually took a full stride, found a good pass lane, and got a good one-timer off. Well, what the attribute that Eric Robinson has, um, those legs are amazing wheels. I mean, uh, his speed, I mean, it's incredible uh, what he can do. Once he starts high-stepping it from our own zone, the defensive zone, and he starts getting through the neutral zone, uh, I'd love to see him be a little bit more creative with his lateral motion, a little bit of weave down the ice instead of straight down the wall all the time. Because the closer you get to the far blue line in the offensive zone, 
and you're still on the wall, you've made it very, very simple for, for containment. But if you start getting natural uh, lateral motion in there by crossing your feet in the neutral zone, look at a Connor McDavid <clears throat> with what he will do in the neutral zone by weaving. So what you're doing is you're getting an automatic shift on the defensive zone all the time when you're creating a weave or lateral motion down the ice. Players are shifting. Bottom line, when I say they're shifting, there's players that are crossing under. And when you cross under, and a lot of mistakes happen. You, you click heel and toe and go down. But if a player is still set backwards and just seat cutting and their stick is out in front of them for stick on puck and you're coming right at that defender, you've made it very, very easy. But Eric Robinson has incredible pace, incredible gear change. When I say gear change, you got one speed to get out of the blocks. His next three to five strides are off the charts. And then if he starts cutting in, for instance, getting over the offensive blue line and being able to cut in and get that shot off, uh, that's another gear. So there's not too many players in the National Hockey League that you can say up and down the roster have three solid gears like that. Um, there's players that have obviously the first because that's what gets them in the NHL. Then they've got that second that keeps them in the NHL. And then they've got that third, which is, you know, everybody notices that type of speed and pace and you go, wow. And you could put Eric Robinson's stride with speed and pace almost into the same as Connor McDavid's pace and speed kind of stride because uh, it, it's that fast. It's incredible. So uh, uh, not too many players, Greg, have those kind of legs. Absolutely. So I uh, just want to do a quick summary here. So we're talking about doing linear crossovers through the neutral zone. It kind of gets some weavy motion where it makes the defenders potentially cross their feet, which they obviously do not want to do because there's so many issues that happen, uh, particularly with uh, we'll say that they're good skaters and they're not going down, but being able to change direction effectively and with large lateral movement to close off space. Correct. Correct. Yeah, you, uh, you use the word linear. I, I have a tough time in today's times using that. That's a word that came out about three years ago, uh, three to five years ago with linear crossovers. Uh, I had to look it up when it first came up. Um, I just call it a lateral motion crossover, getting over with a weave. Um, the linear, uh, I still don't use, but I find it very interesting. I'm trying to use it more and more because it's uh, in today's uh, speech today, hockey, hockey lingo. Yeah, it seems like a lot of players uh, know that. Um, and that was the, the first of the Hockey IQ newsletter that took off was explaining what a linear crossover was. So uh, give, give some respect to the term and how far it's gone in the hockey sphere these days that it's, it's easily recognizable. Yeah, it's um, what a lot of people fail to see, though, is um, what, what is the description of a linear crossover Bob Yor was doing that in the early 70s. Gilbert Perot was doing that in the mid-70s and early 80s. Guy Lafleur was doing the exact same thing. And that is the continually crossing it and, 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 and keeping your feet moving. And uh, but those greats that I just mentioned right there, they were they were all doing that. Dennis Savard was doing it in 1980 with the Chicago Blackhawks. But that's what that's what separated that group of players that I just mentioned. Uh, the Lafleurs, uh, the Ors, the Paroles, the Dennis Savards. I mean, uh, it, it's it's crazy. Um, but that's those 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 kind of players 
kind of revolutionized the era that they were playing in. But now we have so many players being able to do it today. Uh, and that's why the game is so fast. That's why the game is incredibly fast. And I think it's only going to get faster. Uh, Zach Wierenski asked me a question. I think we were in Florida this year. He says, Kenny, where do you see the game going? Because yeah, Zach is a great uh, student of the game. He's a traditionalist. Uh, and he knows uh, that I am also. Because where do you see the game going? And I said, uh, I believe in 10 years' time that there will be five to six skating type of players like Connor McDavid on every single team. Uh, maybe, maybe in 20 years, but I'm talking about that kind of level, the Connor McDavid's of the world, that kind of speed that maybe in 20 years time, every team will have five or six of those. I think that's the speed of the game is even going to get faster and quicker because of the emphasis and the focus on skating. But, uh, I don't see, uh, I don't see the rest of the game getting much quicker. I don't see the passing or shooting getting can't. Yeah, I, I can't see that getting any quicker. Um, but the skating aspect, I do. Yeah, I think skating is going to be revolutionized. Uh, you know, I was watching some youth players yesterday. Um, they all want to do the Zegras. They're all trying between the legs and Michigan moves and all of that, but you can tell which organizations they came from based on their level of skating and their ability to cross their feet. Well, yes. um, and a lot of the top programs are producing players that have that at least imprint. I mean, Connor McDavid matching the hands with the speed and just this sheer, you know, fast twitch muscle that he was uh, given and he's worked to acquire is unbelievable. But I, I think you're spot on with that from, physical standpoint and then obviously the, the tactics will be forever changing and we're going to get you know more kale mccarr-esque type players more bobby Orr's in the in the world i think uh that's where we're also going to be going i mean so oh yeah is a great example i mean he led the nhl in scoring i think was two three years ago yeah and he never took any point shots and he was always yep. moving in yeah i uh i'm blessed to be able to see a guy like that every single day and work very closely with him. We have a routine together and uh, just to get his touches in. And um, he's, he's one of the greatest that I've ever seen up close. Um, we have a terrific relationship on the ice. And the one, the one part of Z's game that I just find incredible is how he joins the play, uh, how it looks like he's not really moving at times, but he's pulling away from, two defenders at the same time and then him being able to find seams to make a pass or uh, to create a lane to shoot. And then that shot, he's got that little flick and that shot is about to be able to see it up close every single day. That shot is that he, he take he takes things off of it. it might be 65, 70 miles an hour. And then that flick might be 85 miles an hour, but it's just a little flick and um, it's an incredible shot. And, uh, yeah, it's uh, what what an athlete, um, and I just love the way he goes about his business, training every single day to be the very very best. All right, uh, let's go to a quick fire segment here. Uh, what would be some of your pet peeves of uh, players? So, what for, exa for example, uh, I hate when defensemen slide for no good reason and they just take away nothing, and everyone just stops up or they take an extra stride and go around it. I think the slide is overrated and uh, point shots. 
obviously point shots are getting taken out more and more at the highest level, but still just seeing point shots being thrown at the net with no walking the blue line and, and just tossing with no thought or looking around. Uh, those two for me are massive. Yeah. Let, let's talk about the point shots. Um, the point shot of just throwing it and not walking the line. <clears throat> I can see when a player is contained up high, closed off, a lot of top-down pressure, and they just have to get it off, and they have to get that shot on net uh, immediately. That that I can understand. If a player has got room to be able to walk and slide, yeah, I, I agree with you. You would love to be able to see him open up the ice and be creative to be able to see his flanks uh, and obviously uh, a shooting lane. But uh, um, a lot of those shots, Greg, as you know, in the National Hockey League, the game is so quick. Sticks are so good. Um blocking shots is so good today that players are just trying to get it through because they're being, uh, there's push up pressure, there's top down pressure and they just got to get it through. Uh, a lot of players shoot wide on purpose too, just to get the puck deep because otherwise it's going back the other way. It's going to hit shin pads, hit a stick or a body part and go the other way. Um, the slide, I know what you're saying when the slide is, you don't have to slide. And that player is overcommitted and he's been walked. And then obviously there's a backdoor pass for a two, an easy two on one. Uh, yeah. I mean, I think that's overcommitment. If that's a word uh, we'll, that will describe that play. I believe in the slide when a player is tight, really, really tight. Uh, it's a five on three situation, five on four power play. And you have, Mitch Marner on one side having the puck, and you got Matthews on the other side back door, and Marner is only four feet off the goalpost. And there's a lot of confusion down low, and that defenseman slides. That sauce that has to go over a player's hip has to be absolutely perfect to get up two feet over a hip and then land within six feet to a guy like uh, Matthews on the back door. That's where I love the slide because that, that, that sauce really, I mean, it's gotta be absolutely perfect. And you see an awful lot of times that that play cannot be made. Um, the overcommitment where it's a two on one from the blue line in, and you're, you're, you're trying to take away the pass. You're trying to give a, give the shooter the shot. Uh, and then you slide maybe kind of favoring towards the shooter more, yeah, I, I agree with you there. And uh, and then you have just an easy passing lane. Uh, but that goes back to one word, overcommitment. Um, and players that don't slide and don't slide too much usually defend with great feet, great body position, great stick, <clears throat> and that's the key, uh, is a great, great stick. And uh, uh, that's why I think, the you know, in focus and in – at the highest levels, when it comes to two-on-one flow and practice, I don't believe two-on-one is taken serious enough. Uh, as an odd man break in practice, it should be played really, really intently and serious because it happens so much uh, in, in a game situation. So, uh, But that two-on-one can be happening off the, off the half wall, and uh, that's where your stick has got to be good in body position and skate. So, uh, uh, and... Uh, just uh, Brad Shaw, who is a, a great defensive coach who's now with Vancouver, and I had the chance to work with him 
uh, he always said sticks and skates must make sense. And uh, as a defender, and I always love that line and uh, I credit that to Bradshaw, who's now with the Canucks, but uh, uh, sticks and skates must make sense, but, uh, and also a good hockey mind. All right. So now that we've uh, deconstructed my two, what, what are some of your pet peeves or things that get you going where uh, you get a little passionate? Yeah, I'm, I'm, I, well, I, you could tell I'm a very passionate coach. Uh, just even being on this conversation, I, I, I love to say it the way it is and I'm, I'm strong with my thoughts and all that kind of thing and believe in my thoughts, but um, probably my biggest peeve, Greg, um, starts at the 17 year old age level up to the NHL level when you have a great athlete in the game of hockey and they don't practice the way they play. Um, they don't practice at the pace, the way they play. They don't shoot the puck or pass the puck the way they play. So you just can't turn it on when it comes to a game situation. It just doesn't turn on. I don't care if you're an elite, an elite player, it's not going to happen. The teams out there are too good, uh, at the USH level, the division one level, major junior level, American hockey league level and the NHL level. Um, so you just can't turn it on. So my biggest pet peeve is players who do not practice at the pace or at the intelligence of a game situation. Uh, and I, I believe everything should be 80, 90, almost game like percent, uh, to a, to a game all the time. Um, even short practices throughout the year when you're only practicing 35 minutes, my gosh, last time I checked, there's people that are working eight hours a day. There's people that are working 12 hours a day. If you can't practice on the basketball court or the football field or the baseball diamond or the 200 by 85 foot ice rink for 35 minutes hard at game like speed, there's something wrong. Absolutely. So that's my, that's my biggest pet peeve. Um, other than that, uh, I, I think, uh, I mean, other than that, I want to talk about the things that I love where athletics are going. You mentioned, uh, you know, kids, you know, wanting to do the Michigan move and things like that. If they're doing that on a regular basis and uh, that would bother me as a coach, but when a kid is trying something like that, the odd time, I like the fact that he's watched enough TV. He loves that. Uh, uh, he loves the, the actual execution of the move. Um, but more importantly, the creativity behind it. So I never would like to see any coaches take creativity away from younger players. But if a player is doing that constantly, uh, in my day, uh, teaching youth level hockey, it was a pass behind the, your back, through your skates, kick it back up. I never taught that in my life. I never taught a toe drag in my life. Uh, to this day, I would never teach it to a youth level player. And the reason why is because that youth level player is usually going to be looking up at the ceiling if they're playing against a very good hockey team at the peewee level. So I've never taught that, but I like the fact that a player has tried it <coughs> and it may have worked because you're taking, uh, you're, 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 you'd be taking the creativity away from it if you didn't allow that player to try it every so often. But I was one of those coaches too that would say, okay, you've tried that move a few, few too many times. It's not working. There's a time and place and that kind of thing. But uh, uh, sport is art. Um, it's improvision. Um, 
every play is different. Uh, if, if there's one pet peeve that I'd like to go along with not practicing at the pace is a pet peeve I have for coaches in all of sports. And that is not allowing the players to play. Everything has to be, you've got to stand here. You've got to be here. I, I don't technically believe in that in every sport. Uh, I, I believe that uh, uh, there's the play is happening so quickly that the player can't think I've got to be here all the time. I mean, let's take hockey. If it's uh, a PK situation, a PP situation, yes, where you're all, where everybody is situated on the ice, <clears throat> I completely understand. But when it comes to fast five on five hockey or basketball up and down the court or the game of soccer in the Premier League, you cannot tell me that every player needs to be told where to be. It, it, it just, it, it, there's no way. Uh, we're, we're taking the creativity out. We're not allowing that player to improvise. But uh, I remember reading a great hockey book uh, called The Game. It's probably the greatest book ever written by Ken Dryden. And it talked about in the old days how Guy Lafleur could not be told to stand here or skate here from Scotty Bowman back in the day. And it's because Guy Lafleur saw the game a different way. Guy Lafleur saw the game by where he was on the ice, what opened up for him, what is closing up on him, that type of thing. And uh, we just lost a, one of the greatest hockey players in the world a couple of weeks ago in Guy Lafleur. But but he couldn't react even in the 70s, in the late 70s, to what Scotty Bowman was asking for back in that uh, era, uh, according to the book. So and I really believe that happens today to our greatest players, too. We, John Tortorella had a wonderful line with this. I don't want to take the sticks out of your hands. That means he wanted a player to be creative. But also, at the same point, there had to be a two-way street where that player responded to what John Tortorella was asking for. But when he said, I don't want to take the sticks out of your hand was such a great line because he wanted creativity. He wanted that player to do what they did best, but still, <coughs> excuse me, but still follow uh, the, what, what was being taught with X's and O's a little bit. But I think if we take that creativity away from our younger players uh, it's not good. It, we got to allow players to play uh, at every single level. And I'm even talking about younger players that are 24 year old in the NHL. We've got to allow our players to play. Excellent. You, you already went exactly where I wanted to go next was uh, from pet peeves to the things that you love watching the most. What are some of the plays that you really enjoy seeing uh, out there on the rink? Well, you, you, you can't help from, you know, I brought up Zach Wernonski. You I brought up Patrick Liney. I, you know, you, I heard you bring up Bjorkstrand's name. You love to be able to see when Bjorkie's shooting the puck, that kind of release. It's uh, an elite level, Eric Robinson's speed. Um, but I think uh, what I really, really love watching too is uh, uh, the players that uh, give an honest effort every single shift, the boon generals of the world, the Gus Nyquist of the world that – play five on five hockey the right way. Um, they're playing every single shift at uh, their highest speed, their highest level. And that's why uh, those players are leaders. That's why they wear a letter, that type of thing. And then going to something, Greg, that I really, really enjoy watching is uh, the most, the, the greatest work players in the world. I think the, 
greatest player that I've seen up close. Uh, on the opposing side, the last seven years, I, I still have to go with Sidney Crosby, number one. Um, I can't get enough of watching Sidney Crosby. I think just as an all-around player, uh, I put him, you know, in the, the Bobby Orr category. Uh, I love I love watching the elite shooters that I mentioned, uh, you know, on the offside, uh, what they can do, uh, the Stamkos, uh, uh, the Ovechkins, the Lineys, to be able to, sh- to shoot a puck. But I love pound-for-pound pound players like Patrick King, uh, the vision, the the pace as far as what he's like from the blue line in on the offensive side, how he sees the ice. Uh, a player that we had a couple of years ago, pound for pound, one of the greatest I've ever seen up close, Artemi Panarin, what he's able to see, how he's able to uh, dangle out there. Uh, he's The delays in his game, uh, the delay meaning, again, making an innocent play into something, uh, whether it's a button hook turn up or just a delay where he never turns his body and is able to see the zone waiting for a trailer player is so incredible. Um, but then Any specific uh, examples that you can pull for us here to give us the picture in the mind, like how do you see the game? As far as for what player, a certain player? Just so you have these things that you love. So like are there specific plays that you love watching? Like you love watching a – Panarin button hook as he threads the triangle and finds the second layer, or he dangles that second player and finds the weak side defenseman. Are there any specific plays that you love? Like I'm a big fan of two on twos and how players go about breaking down the defense. Yeah, no, I, well, I mean, I think what I love in general is just a good solid hockey game five on five where they're being allowed to play um, division one major junior uh, American hockey league level, uh, you know, which is great, great hockey. Um, then you get a cleaner game like the NHL where there's a little less mistakes being made because of the talent pool, uh, that's there. But, uh, no, I just, I, I love a good pace of a game of five on five. Uh, I enjoy watching speed through the neutral zone. I a Kuznetsov skate the style of a Kuznetsov being able to see cut through the neutral zone and leaving guys in the dust and it barely look, makes, looks like he's moving uh, that kind of speed. And then you, my gosh, the Connor McDavid's of the world with what he can do. And uh, on a one on two, one on three, one on four, um, that's, that's off the charts. That's revolutionizing the game. Um, but yeah, then there, then there's teams out there that have five, six, outstanding uh, offensive players that come into town. And, you know, you like to watch the Toronto Maple Leafs come into town or you like a hard nosed uh, two teams that come to mind as far as hard nose that play five on five, very, very hard. Every line uh, is Minnesota uh, is the New York Islanders. And then you get a fast paced team like the Carolina hurricanes that are just constantly in in a transitional game. Uh, they're fun to watch or the New York Rangers when they're really, really on with their transitional game. So there's so much about the game that I love uh, so much about the game. Uh, as far as I love, as far as a unit of players or players solely doing things that they do so well. Um, again, it's, it's poetry, it's art. It's, uh, it's incredible to see because it's not the same play over and over. Everything changes, but it changes in all of sport. Um, 
And that's the great thing about uh, uh, not, it's not staying the same. It's, 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 there's constant change, constant change in, in every single sport. Fantastic. Yeah. Just the, the speed and the execution, especially the higher level. And I love the, the comment you made about the NHL. It's such a clean game um, from how it's played. Like, it's obviously the most available from a video standpoint, especially here in North America, but sometimes the video and the play of the NHL is too clean <laughs> to pull out. And, and I think it kind of comes back to some of the coaching and the overcoaching. It looks so perfect in the NHL, especially like a power play, but then you go watch a college game or a high school game or a youth game. And there's so much created off of not set plays, not you're the here and that you're there. And it's just, the, the chaos of the game taking over in the evasion sport that is. Yeah. And, and then you, you, you might get youth level coaches out there coaching a sport team, but they're watching NHL video. They don't, there's no mesh. It doesn't work. It's impossible. Uh, it's crazy. The execution's not there. The skating's not there at the peewee level. It's just not there. So uh, any coach that would be breaking down video, and showing his peewee team, this is what we should be doing on the PK or the power play. It's insane. It's crazy. Uh, it makes zero sense. So um, because of the cleanliness of the highest levels of, of what the game is like. And uh, at the youth level, the execution's not there. The fundamentals aren't there to be able to execute what they're seeing at the highest level. But uh, no, I, I'm very, very passionate on uh, Greg, if there's anything taken out of this podcast is uh, fundamentals, going back to fundamentals at the youth level, all the way to the highest level. I've been very, very fortunate to teach at every single level. Um, and you know what? That's the common denominator by the end of the day, fundamentals. Uh, but then there's part of a word. There's, if you break down the word fundamentals, there's a word I like to take out of that, and that is apply fun. Uh, you apply fun to every single level. You get players that want to come to the rink at every single level. Um, and you have to be like that today. Uh, so you, when you get coaches at the youth level that don't make it fun and kids want to quit, obviously the wrong coach is teaching that sport or the wrong educator, uh, trying to, to direct that, that team. Um, when you take fun away at the national hockey league level too, and you're not winning, it's not good. Even if you're not winning, you still got to find fun and practices and this and that because you want players being able to come to the rink. So uh, if I'm that perfect liaison at the highest level between our head coach and our associate coach to our players uh, and applying a little bit more fun to skill sessions and our reps and this and that, that's what I'm looking for. And that's what Jared Bull and I try to bring together uh, with our morning skates and our post practices. And, uh, um, but uh, culture is a big thing too. That's maybe uh, another podcast, Greg is talking about culture. Another podcast would be talking about uh, uh, multi-sport athletes. I would love to talk about that. Uh, So I'm giving you a hint if you want to do another. Yeah, yeah. I think we can come back on. I mean, I love that when you're talking (laughs) about fun. I mean, that was what I loved about the Buffalo Sabres. That's one of Don Granados. I just want guys to have fun coming to the rink. And how many guys at the end of the season didn't want it to end? Uh, Even on a losing team that was out of the playoffs was absolutely stunning to me. Um, And then I would love to go back on on what you maybe loved about Toronto coming to town, because maybe not everyone's seeing them as the, you know, 
glitter glitter in the Stanley Cup's eyes per se, like that the Avs and Florida are, but clearly they've caught your attention. Well, they caught my attention because we're we're we're, we're talking about some highly skilled players and their execution with their skating and their all around play. Um, you know, you get a guy from Arizona who scored 60 goals. If you had to tell the hockey world 10 years ago that there was going to be the greatest, one of the greatest players in the world coming from Arizona, they would look at you like, uh, you know, as if your head was backwards, but uh, uh, that's how much the game has changed. Uh, internationally, you don't know where players are going to come from today. It's, it's uh, no longer just a North American game. Uh, there's no way. I mean, uh, uh, well, we've seen the change for many, many years. Uh, the Borean Salmings came over and changed the game on the defensive level as a, a Swedish player. Uh, then, you know, you saw the Fedorovs as the Russian players and the Pavel Burres as Russian players. Every, every nationality's produced some great, great players. And then getting to Arizona, again, Austin Matthews, I just find it incredible. But uh, uh, no, I'm a, I'm a traditionalist when it comes to recognizing the history of the game, past players from the 1930s until where, where we are today. Um, and if you had to look at film of Eddie Shore skating, if you had to look at film of Maurice Richard skating and Bobby Hall skating, you would, you would still see how great those players were, Greg, um, and what they were able to do on the equipment that they were playing with back then and what they were using and how Bobby Hall was still shooting a puck 100 miles an hour with a very short wooden Northland hockey stick. But uh, uh, that's crazy. I mean, he was shooting a puck the way guys shoot pucks today with carbon fibers. Uh, it's it's absolutely crazy, but that's how great he was. Yeah, it might have been a 140-mile-an-hour shot today. Like, it, unbelievable. Yeah, and I think the same can be true in many aspects of life, is that people are usually no smarter they're usually the same, but they have access to technology, whether that be the internet to check out things or could be, you know, just technology in the skates like Bobby or had today's skates. Oh my God. Uh, that would be unbelievable. But yeah. those lugs of things strapped to his feet. Yeah. He still well, did yeah. what he did. Yeah. He was wearing a super tack and, um, old tacks with uh, a leather bottom. Then they went to a hard enamel plastic bottom and um, tube skates, tube, T-U-B-E, not toque. Um, I don't think Bobby Orr ever skated in a toque, uh, to be honest with you. I don't think so. I don't think I've ever seen a picture of him. But uh, uh, going back to Bobby Orr, his stick, <clears throat> his Northlands or his Victoriavilles that he used later on in life, I've got a couple of them. They're as light, Greg as any carbon fiber hockey stick. So that's how far ahead of he was with technology that his sticks were that light. But uh, um, no, I, I can't see a player shooting 140 miles an hour. I just, I don't see that day unless it's uh, uh, spring propelled. I just don't see it. Uh, you know, Bobby Hall in today's stick would probably still be shooting hundred and five miles an hour, 110 miles an hour in today's stick, but he was shooting 105 miles an hour with, with a wooden stick. Uh, absolutely crazy. Um, but yeah, you, you can go on in every sport with technology. What players would be like, would Ben Hogan be like Tiger Woods? Uh, I don't know. Uh, uh, would uh, uh, Gail Sayers uh, be like Walter Payton? I, I, you know, with better shoes, better conditions on the track. I don't know. So uh, it's uh, 
but it just shows you how great these athletes were in the past to be able to do what they were doing with the equipment. So I, I, a thing that I would love for our hockey players, if any younger players are out there listening uh, to your podcast, is to learn the game, to understand the game as far as who came ahead of our great players that we watch today and know the history of the game, know the history of the Stanley Cup, know the history of the original six, know the history of uh, expansion in 67 and that type of thing. So um, understanding where the past was would make them understand where the game is today and where it's going. Awesome. All right. So I've got one last thing and then I'll let you go. I really uh, appreciate you spending this much time with us. Um, Major areas of focus of skills um, or skills with tactics you know, if we're building a player, so say we've got youth parents or youth coaches on the line here, where should they focus? For, and I'll, I'll start with an example. Like for me, a lot is crossing the feet, outside edge comfortability. It's like that would be one area of focus. Well, I think the focus is skating. Um, you're talking what, peewees? Um, just going through the ages. So like very early, it's as soon as you possibly can get them crossing their feet as they're moving up. Okay, now we're maybe driving some force into the ice and building from there. Well, I, I mean, I think you could start teaching grade seven and eight year olds how to cross over. I mean, uh, raising the bar for a seven and eight year old to a nine year old is very, very simple. Um, when the seven year old has the basics down, raising the bar from a nine year old to an 11 year old and teaching them fundamentals from there and uh, skill tactics, uh, that's raising the bar. Uh, Every good coach should recognize um, where the talent is, but when kids can't execute and and their skating's not there and their passing's not there, you obviously can't raise the bar. You've got to really focus on fundamentals. But no, the skating, uh, you can't uh, can't get enough of it from every single level with youth level. Uh, You've got to continually focus on it. But that's just one minute part of skating that you are talking about uh, crossing over that's minute uh if i had to teach today um and nothing has changed working with players today is the extension of their stride to get away from a short choppy stride um big focus for mine for for me uh and uh my v position to be able to get out and three to five hard strides off the puck and with the puck. That was my biggest focus uh, of working on with players that were very, that that were turning the corner and getting very, very good. Uh, And you could do that with an eight or a nine-year-old all day long, working on their starts. Uh, um, Wasted energy with starts usually goes upward instead of through. Uh, Instead of getting north, it's going north the wrong way. It's you'll be going north uh, towards your target. So, Anytime a helmet lifts up, that's wasted energy. Once the helmet drives through at the youth level, now you're now you're you're focusing on getting all your energy through. But um, one thing I I I want to talk about with our listeners, and I want to finish with is we cannot get away from educating our kids on one part of the game that is maybe one of the most important parts of the game. And that is eliminating all contact from behind. Uh, We cannot get enough of uh, educating them on when you see a stop sign on a back of a sweater, when you see the nameplate, when you see the numbers of their helmet, when you don't see the face of that player and you see just their numbers, there should be no contact at all um, in driving a player through with containment through the, through the boards. Um, 
that's where we still got to educate our players. No hitting from behind. So uh, there's not enough focus on that uh, at every level. There's just not. Uh, there's not enough focus on checking and containment and good stick and body position clinics. There's not. Um, that education process has to be going over and over and over. I taught for 25 years, Greg, I taught uh, contact clinics for squirt level and up, squirts and peewees, because it wasn't being taught, taught. Now you say, how can you teach contact? It's not allowed. Contact wasn't allowed 20 years ago, 15 years ago until you were a peewee. Now I heard it's what, Bantam now? Is that correct? Uh, you know, I'm not quite sure. I, I, think, it's, I, think, I think it's Bantam now. Yeah, I think it's Bantam. I think it's Bantam, but I was, yeah. I was teaching containment and, and, and knowing how to receive contact and give the proper contact as a 10-year-old, um, as a 9-year-old, because it was happening in the games. So when you pull that lack of education away of what, where your body is on the ice, are you away from the boards? Are you, uh, are you, are you, are you as, a, as a player containing you and driving you with speed? Well, you've got to know that. <laughs> and uh, that's where that educational part with contact clinics, uh, teaching good stick in a contact clinic. Well, guess what? You just had zero contact, but you had, good, you had a good stick. Angling. You may not make any contact at all, but you just taught how to angle a player in defensively without contact and stop the play. So that all fell into the category of a contact clinic for me. So for 25 years, I taught contact clinics to squirts and peewees. And uh, in 25 years, zero injuries, never a broken wrist, never a broken finger, broken arm, no concussions, none of the above. What I was trying to do was avoid all the above. So um, if I was part of it today at the youth level, I would still be doing my contact clinics. My contact clinics were sold out overnight because <coughs> uh, that education wasn't being done enough. So um, I think coaches today, when you're coaching a team, Greg, of 15 or 16 kids at the peewee level and the squirt level, practices, get away from the power play once in a while. Get away from the PK. Get away from the breakout. Guess what? Teach the proper fundamentals for contact, containment, good stick, good body position, and educate our players how to not get hurt and basically proper sportsmanship, never to drive a player through the wall, especially if their back is turned. So uh, one of my big pet peeves right there. About to say, we're just uh, filling up the pet peeve bucket here. But uh, no, I've got, I've got our list made for next time. So uh, yeah, looking forward to talking again sometime. Uh, this was absolutely wonderful. Uh, is there any way I'll, I'll, I'll leave it open two minutes, chat about anything, how people can find you just shout out yeah. to anyone, et cetera. Two minutes yeah. floor is yours. They, 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 they can, well, uh, first of all, um, please say hello to me if they ever see me at nationwide um, kids, families, anytime they, they want to say hello, please. Uh, I wish I had the time to get on the ice with more youth level. Uh, I do run the odd clinic here and there at nationwide. Um, we try to do one where, uh, monies go to the foundation where, um, uh, we try to, uh, this is a, this is a terrific thing for me. I try to get a hockey team on nationwide ice, um, run a hour and 15 minute practice for up to 20 kids, uh, then do a Q and a in the locker room. 
that usually lasts about another hour with the parents involved. At the end of the year, usually if there's a slush fund, that a money of like $1,500 gets paid to uh, the Columbus Blue Jackets Foundation from that team. So figure out the numbers, 20 numbers at $1,500, very, very affordable going to the foundation, going to the right thing. And how many kids can say that they get that kind of uh, uh, treatment and they get a day out like that at Nationwide and they get a Q&A with a, uh, with, with a coach uh, at, at the NHL level. So I love to do that. And then uh, if uh, anybody had ever want to contact me with the odd email, I know your podcast is probably not going out to the masses, masses, but I can uh, uh, be contacted uh, the odd time and I don't mind uh, getting the odd email at kmccudden at bluejackets.com. So if they had a hockey question, they can contact me at kmccudden at bluejackets.com. If it's a silly question, I wouldn't ask it. I mean, I wouldn't answer it. Uh, if it's something off the charts, I'm not going to answer it. But if it's something very, very good and it's the, for the betterment of the game, I'll answer it all day long. All right. No emails with what Santa should get me this year. Got it. Got it. Right. <laughs> Well, thank you, Kenny, so much for spending this time. Really appreciate it. Uh, and good luck to you throughout the summer and looking forward to having you back in Columbus in no time. Greg, thanks for the time. And I look for, uh, forward to chapter two with you again. And uh, we'll nail it down and we'll be very passionate on both sides. Awesome. Thank you. See ya. Thank you. Take care. That concludes this week's episode. Thanks for joining us here at Hockey IQ. If you haven't already, take a quick moment to hit that subscribe button, give us a thumbs up, and drop a review. If you want to be a great teammate, even recommend us to a friend. You can follow us at Hockey's Arsenal on Twitter and Instagram. Check out the website, hockeysarsenal.com, where you can subscribe to the weekly newsletter. You won't regret it. Catch a Buttes here next week for a brand new episode.